So with that, I welcome you to lesson two of the Jewish course of why. Last week we covered, I believe, seven questions or so. Tonight the goal is to cover eight questions. Actually, more than eight. There's eight official questions, plus we have a few, a few um, uh, additional questions that I've been asked that we are going to address. Okay, so the, the, you know, as, as you noticed last week, the goal of this course is to give, to address a potpourri of Jewish topics. It's kind of like, oh, <laughs> David asks, why is this night different? Well, you know the joke, right? With, um, <laughs> you know the joke with, um, with Rabbi Dr. Rabbi Lord Dr. Jonathan Sachs from England who the queen decided one day, or decided that she's going to knight uh, Rabbi Sachs. So he's brought in to the, to the ceremony, and whatever the ceremony looks like, they, the whole thing, and then, you know, they do with the, with the sword. Maybe, maybe they don't. I have no idea. They did, the, they did the ceremony, and at the end, the queen sticks out her hand to shake, you know, to shake uh, the, new, uh, the new knight, to shake uh, Rabbi Sachs's hand. Rabbi Sachs, who's an Orthodox rabbi, said, Jewish laws of modesty, so I only uh, come in contact with my wife or immediate family, so with all due respect, you know, I, my beliefs preclude me from shaking her hand. She's very confused. She turns to her guards and says, why is this night different from all other nights? Anyway, that's, that was the setup, and, uh, oh, thank you. Hold on, do it one more time, because I was talking over it. Go, Jerry. There we go. Okay, good. I gotta make my volume louder so that I can hear those more clearly. So, we have a lot of questions. We have a lot of questions that, uh, that we can cover. We have questions from a bunch of different topics and different angles, and the goal is to keep it flowing, to keep it exciting, to keep it engaging, and, um, and to keep it Jewish. So, let's jump right in. The first topic of conversation is about the Mugain David, about the Star of David. Now, raise your hand if you have a piece of jewelry, or if somebody in your family has a piece of jewelry with the Star of David. Raise your hand if you have any item with the Star of David. Maybe you modified your car. You took out the Mercedes thing and you popped on a Star of David. That also counts. If you have any Star of David bling, raise your hand. Okay, so I see a lot of hands. I see a majority of hands, if not all the hands, have gone up. The question is, and I've been asked this, maybe you've wondered this, maybe you've Googled it. I'm going to give you the authentic answers, though. Um, you, you know, Google is, uh, is hit or miss. What is the deal with a star? Why is, you know, a six-pointed double triangle star a Jewish symbol? Where does that come from? What are the origins and why is it? So number one, a few questions. Let's break it down. Oh wait, we have to ask it as a why. Okay, why is the Star of David Jewish? Now we have our why question, now we can proceed. Um, and, and it comes with a few different parts. Why is it Jewish? Why is it connected with David of all people? Why King David? He had the star. And why is it called Magain David in Hebrew? Do you know what the word mag? Unmute yourself if you can translate the word magain. Unmute yourself. Shield of David. Shield of excellent, excellent. The shield of David. What, what does that mean? Is that he had an actual shield in the shape of a star? Uh, is that an efficient way to protect yourself? What about all the cutouts? 
That sounds like if there's an arrow, you want to maximize your space, why would you cut out? Um, it, se it seems like a little bit of an inefficient way to have all those cutouts in your shield. Listen, I'm not a military guy, I'm not an expert, but something tells me you want to maximize your surface area and not, uh, and not do that. So, all right, who, who can jump in? Who has an idea about the Star of David? Can you give me something? By the way, if you looked ahead and read the PDF, uh, read, the, read, read the, uh, the text that I sent you, you can still chime in, but it doesn't count. No, I'm kidding. No, tell me what you know about the Star of David. Anything about the Star of David? David, you look like you're jumping in. Yeah. Say it again. Um, it's got six points, six sephirot. Excellent, excellent. Okay, good. Yeah. One, one, one triangle pointing up, one coming back down. Good, I like that. Excellent. You got a third? You can't leave me hate. You gotta give me, if we're doing answers, you gotta give me three. That's the rule. That's the new rule. <laughs> I'm kidding. Okay, so these are good. These are good. I, I like them. We're gonna, I'm gonna share this screen. I'm gonna share my screen with the text. We're gonna go through them. We're gonna come up with actually three answers, three explanations. By the way, the first thing I need to say is no one really knows. That's the truth. The truth is no one really knows. It's just, it's a thing. There's speculation, and I'm gonna share with you three different things that are taught, but you heard it here first. No one really knows. Okay. Um, sharing my screen, PDF, if you have it, you can look at it on your own screen, you can look at it on my, my screen. Um, okay, here we go. This is coming from none other than Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, who's one of the great, sorry, one of the great um, Jewish legal authorities of the 20th century, lived in the Lower East Side. Tremendous, tremendous scholar in Judaism and Jewish law. Take a look at what he writes. Text number one, I'm going to read this. It is well known that the Star of David has been used on art curtains and Torah covers for centuries without any controversy. Let me explain what he was addressing. Somebody had asked him if it was really a Jewish symbol or something fake, something that just like it's a misrepresentation. So the first thing he says is, don't, it's at this point, it's tradition and there's never been controversy so let's not stir up any trouble. We can analyze it, but it's not, uh, it's not trafe. It's not like off limits. Although, he says, we do not know the origins of the Star of David, like I told you before, this alone does not constitute an objection to its use. In fact, take a look what he says here. In fact, one can find important symbolism in the Star of David in that it serves to remind us that God reigns over what is above and below and over the four directions. Perhaps the connection with David is that when he went to war, he placed his trust in God's all-encompassing reign. And therefore, in accordance with the Torah's instruction to not be afraid while in battle, he was not intimidated by human armies and kings. Don't forget, or said positively, remember who David was. David, well, David, David did a lot of things. There are a lot of classes that we've had on David, and we could talk uh, you know, a whole series on King David. But King David was a warrior. He was a general. He was the one who famously battled Goliath, Goliath, the great giant, David, hence David and Goliath, right? The old slingshot. Um, David symbolizes someone who goes into battle against an enemy that is perhaps physically more formidable, but is not afraid. Why was he not afraid? 
because of his belief that God was everywhere and God was in control. And if God so wished, he would be victorious. And if God didn't wish, well, then there's no point anyway, right? It's all in God's hands. How was that represented? With what we call the Magin David, the shield, right? What protected him? What helped him in his battles? What was his shield, metaphoric, metaphorical shield? It was his belief in God and that God reigned, rules, um, directs, governs the six directions, north, east, south, west, and up and down. Well, okay, for you and I, up, down, front, back, right, left, six directions. Right? Think of a box. There are six surfaces to a box. So God is, um, God is in control. That was his thinking, and that's what helped him get through the toughest, toughest times. So that's Rabbi Moshe Feinstein finding some symbolism. I'm gonna sh so far, so good? Yes? Make sense? Okay, let's continue. I'm going to share my screen, and let's continue inside. Let's look at some more ideas. Okay, um, this is coming from another source, Rabbi Shlomo Zaman Ehrenreich, and he writes the following. The Talmud recounts, this is great, the Talmud recounts, tracted Shabbat, how a certain Galilean lectured, blessed is God who gave the three-dimension Torah to a three-dimension people. Okay, so the Torah, the Bible, has three parts, and the Jewish people also have three parts. What does that mean? So, he continues to explain. Three-dimension Torah refers to the Bible, which consists of the Pentateuch. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. Um, the five books of Moses, the prophets, and the writings, or that the Torah comprises the written Torah, oral Torah, and Kabbalah. Okay, so basically three parts of Torah, and three-dimension people refers to the fact that the Jews consist of priests, Levites, and Israelites. The Star of David, which consists of two interlaced triangles, each with three points, alludes to these uh, tripartite entities, these tripled entities. There were kings of Israel. This is, this is where it gets uh, uh, fascinating. There were kings of Israel who fought valiantly on behalf of the Jewish people, but only for the people and not the Torah. In fact, many of them were wayward and neglected the Torah. But the Jews without the Torah are like a body without a soul. Without the Torah, we cannot be a people. The bond between the Jewish people and the Torah ought never to be severed. This bond will establish a vigorous Jewish continuity indeed. David, the pious and righteous king, fought his wars to protect both the Jewish people and the Torah. He thus linked the Torah of three with the people of three. This is the message conveyed by the Star of David. Once again, we have a symbolism. This is not the same as before. Before, we talked about how God is ever-present in all dimensions. In other words, God is in control, and that's what guided King David. This, this interpretation is about the fact that the three the six points of the star, th two triangles of three, um, three, three, uh, three corners represent the Jewish people and the Torah. And it's such a powerful message. And as, as we just read inside, I'm just reiterating and putting it in my own words. Um, there are the nationalistic interests of the Jewish people and the spiritual interests. And the message here is that they are inseparable. You cannot have one without the other. If you have a Torah without a people, then it's just a book. If you or just a guide, a guideline with no one to do it. If you have a people without a direction, so what kind of people is that? 
right? That's not, that's not the Jewish people. That's a people like any other people. That's not a Jewish people. The Jewish people are defined by Torah. In fact, if you look at Jewish history, the one constant that's always been in Jewish communities is Torah. Everything has changed throughout the 3,300 years of Jewish history. The, the place that we've been in, the language we've spoken, the, the words that we, the, sorry, the language we've spoke, the place we've been in, the clothes we've worn, the food we've eaten, everything has changed. Everything has changed. So what defines the Jewish people? It's not a culture. It's not a language. It's not gefilte fish. It's not even matzo ball soup. There are Jews in the world who don't know what matzo ball soup is. And they'll tell you, what is that? It's not Jewish. Yeah, legit. You know, for us Americans or whatever, and most of us Americans, right, for, for some of us, it seems like obvious and normal, but it's not true. And 200 years ago, 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, you think they were eating matzo ball soup. Uh, guaranteed, there was no Manischewitz 1,000 years ago. I know. I know what you're thinking. Blasphemy. But nonetheless, so what's the point? The only constant in Judaism, the only, sorry, the only constant amongst the Jewish people has been the Torah. So you cannot separate the Jewish people from the Torah. We have two interlocked triangles of three, and this three each, six points total, representing this eternal bond. And that is the legacy of King David. King David was one of the Jewish kings, the first Jewish king, really, that started the, the Davidic uh, dynasty, who fought not just for the people, for their nationalistic interests, for their physical safety and security in their homeland, but also fought for Torah. And put together, you have six points. So that is, that's the, um, that's the core of, of the second explanation. That's why it's called the Star of David, David representing a king who cared about and was fiercely dedicated to both. Okay, make sense? Yes? All right, let's move on quickly to number three. The third explanation, uh, or the third angle, so to speak, on the Star of David, let's jump right in, is, here we go, actually, text three. This is a Kabbalistic answer from a Kabbalistic author, which makes sense. So this is according to the, um, the Kabbalistic teachings. Text 3. The kings of Israel and the kings of Judah, who descended from David, carried differently shaped shields. This is fascinating. Okay, I probably have to preface this by saying, at a certain point in Jewish history, the, the land of Israel um, split and the people of Israel split into two different kingdoms. The kingdom of Israel in the north, comprised of ten tribes, and the kingdom of Judah in the south, comprised of two tribes. Um, when you hear the phrase, the ten lost tribes, that's because the northern kingdom was exiled first, and those ten tribes were pretty much exiled and, uh, and, and separated throughout the other nations, and pretty much lost. Um, but, but in their heyday, when there was two kingdoms, and it wasn't necessarily, by the way, a positive thing. It split because of taxation and corruption. There's a lot to talk about on this topic. Again, this is for, that's for more of a, of a Jewish history course, so we have to keep this very brief. But just know that at a certain point in Jewish history, there were actually two different kingdoms and two different kings. And so what he writes, this author says, they each carry different shields. The kings of Israel had triangular shields. The kings of Judah carried, I'm back inside, carried six-pointed shields to show that they were rooted in the seventh divine attribute of Malchut, sovereignty, and were nourished 
by the six preceding attributes. So to understand this, we have to do a very, very quick crash course in Kabbalah. There are 10 sefirot, 10 divine emanations, 10 divine energies, three of which are intellectual, seven of which are emotional or called emotional. They're called the seven midot, seven attributes, and they are on this page, figure 2.1, chesed, gevura, teferet, netzach, hod, yesod, and number seven, which is not listed here, is malchut. So you see the translation. We have the ability to be kind, to be strong, uh, compassion, beauty is like compassion, uh, victory is um, ambition, splendor is humility, foundation is connection, and malchut is the ability to lead. So King David was a melech. David ha-melech, David was a king. He embodied this idea of malchut, and his six-pointed, his six-pointed shield represented the fact that he was number seven, the king who was kind of um, uh, the beneficiary of the six energies. So according to this author, it was not just, it's not just symbolic that we call it the Star of David, but David didn't actually use this, or we call it Magin David, the Shield of David, but it means like he was protected by his beliefs or he was protected by his, you know, his, uh, his modal, the way he was a king. No, it was literally a shield. And why was the shield designed in a six-pointed configuration to, um, to bespeak the fact that, he was, that, that these were the energies, the emanations, that he was channeling as the king? Listen, in, in Kabbalah, it's a, from a Kabbalistic perspective, it's a fascinating take on it. Do we know at the end of the day what a shield looked like? I don't believe there are artifacts that have survived history. Do we know for sure where the notion of the Star of David, or the Shield of David came from? We don't know definitively, but now we have three good answers. I will tell you this, or three possible answers that are each good in their own right. I will tell you this, the notion that God is in control, the notion that um, God is in control everywhere, the notion that there is a connection, an, an inherent and a necessary connection between the Jew and Torah, these are beautiful themes. So they're, they're, they're themes that we can all relate to, I think, in our own lives and draw inspiration. So the next time, here's the bottom line, the next time you see a Star of David on a necklace or on a bracelet or on a car, which is not a thing, but, you know, but the next time you see it, so now you know, you can meditate on the ever-presence of God, the connection between Jews and Judaism and Torah and, uh, and the Kabbalah of the six energies and the seventh being Malchut. Okay. Any questions or comments thus far? Do you know why, like in the Holocaust, it was the prime uh, moniker of being Jewish? Yeah, yeah, because it's been associated with Jews. And that's why the Nazis chose that as the symbol. It's, it's, yeah, it's like the ultimate Jewish symbol. Why did they choose yellow? I don't know the significance of yellow. Um, I'm sure there, I'm sure there's some record of the significance. Maybe it's because it stood out. It was bright. Um, but certainly wearing that star was meant to designate there is a Jew. There is a Jew. By the way, Hitler, Yamach Shemo, may his name be obliterated. Hitler did not differentiate between Jews. Hitler didn't say, well, you know, you're more Jewish, you're less Jewish. Hitler did not do that. If you were a Jew, he, he, for evil purposes, he, he went after. 
He went after, if, he went after that person if they were Jewish. And I think that, you know, you can learn a lesson from everything, including this, and that is that not in hate but in love, we have to embrace every single Jew, really every single human being. But so often there's, there's, a, there's splits within the community. There's splits, there's no, this, this group, that synagogue, this affiliation. Reminds me of the, of, the, of the lady who walks into the post office before Hanukkah, and she, before the Festival of Lights, and she asked the, uh, the postal, the USPS uh, clerk behind the counter, she says, can I get uh, some Hanukkah stamps? And the clerk says, in what denomination? She says, even in stamps, there are different denominations. Unbelievable. Can't get away from the separate. Anyway, that was a joke. Um, not, okay. So, all right. Next time. Next time, Jerry. So, what is, um, so what's the message that I take, personally, I take from this? Is, uh, yeah, is, is that we should not be, we, we should, we should learn the lesson in the positive and, 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 and love and treat, love everybody and treat everybody um, like family, like a mishpacha, which we are. Okay, let's jump back in to our discussion. So the next question is a question that I've received uh, many times, and it's a question, it's really two questions. We're going to combine two questions. Number one, what's the deal with the mikvah? For those of you that are unfamiliar with the term, the mikvah is a ritual, Jewish ritual bath, a body of water in which Jewish tradition has it that we immerse ourselves in, and when we emerge, we are ritually pure. And if you're wondering, what does that mean? That's exactly what we're talking about. If you're wondering, what, what, well, I can't say how does that work, but why does that work? Why the mikvah? Because it has to be a why question. If that's what you're wondering, perfect. You're in the, you're in the, you're in the right class. You're in the right Zoom uh, room. You found the right place. We're going to talk about mikvah. What's the deal with the mikvah? That's the first question that we're addressing now. And the second part, part two, which is, they're both equally a part of this conversation, is why is there a thing called purity and impurity? Why do people need purification? What's going on with that? Now, the first thing we need to mention is that like many things in Torah or in Judaism, mikvah, ritual purity and impurity, these are things that are ultimately beyond the human grasp. When I say that, there are certain mitzvot that make a lot of sense right off the bat, like do not murder, do not steal. Like these things make a lot of sense. I think most moral human beings understand that, well, I would say all moral human beings understand that these are things, these are, these are good laws to have on the books. Okay. But then you get into laws that, you know, raise some eyebrows, like Jewish laws that raise some eyebrows. For example, um, not to wear a garment uh, woven of wool and linen, together. So like, what's with, what's with that? God, the Torah says it's a, what, what is it, a, a fashion faux pas? Like, oh my gosh, <gasps> not wool and linen together. Oh, I can't believe you're wearing that. What's up with that? You can't mix those five. I mean, the, the, so these are laws that we call chukim. Chukim means they're decrees, super rational decrees. We don't really, we don't really understand it, but it's God's law. We believe it's God's law. It's God's law. So ritual purity and impurity and mikvah, we can put into that category. But this is the Jewish course of why, so we're going to ask the question and give some rationales. But my disclaimer going in is that 
we don't know the full extent of the meaning and ultimately might be, it might be very well beyond human meaning. Nonetheless, we're going to give it our best shot and apply some rationale to these ideas within Judaism. Does that make sense, this intro that I just said? Yes? Make sense? Okay. So we're going to explain, but know that there's still more that might be beyond our reach. But here's, here's our best shot. So let's, let's lay out the foundation. Number one, the Bible, the Torah, talks about many scenarios that render a person impure. Many scenarios, a person comes in contact with a dead body, a person has this situation happen to them, that, that situation happen to them. In various situations, various circumstances, a person is rendered, is considered to be spirit, uh, uh, ritually impure. Impure, not pure. Um, how do they get out of that state of impurity and become purified once again? So many times, in fact, pretty much every time, part of the process involves immersing oneself, one's entire body, in a mikvah, in a gathering, a ritual bath that is a gap. Mikvah means like a gathering, a gathering of water, has to be a certain amount of water, has to be natural water, rainwater, gathered, collected in a, in a space. And, and, um, and that's what a person immerses themselves in to become pure once again. So our questions are, why the mikvah? How does it work? And why is a person, or, or, or yeah, why is a person impure in the first place? And why do people need that purification? So let's address these ideas to the best of, of, of our ability. And I want to dispel some myths that, uh, that, that pop up right away. Number one, the first myth is um, that people assume that the word impure means unclean or not good, right? Um, bad, negative connotation. It's not true. It's not true. The, the notion of ritual impurity has nothing to do with good or bad, has nothing to do with clean or unclean. A person can be spotlessly clean, on every level, like 100% clean, but still be in a state of ritual impurity. Because that's a spiritual status, it's not a physical status. So to present this piece, let's read it inside. I believe it's Maimonides himself who writes this. Let me go to the text. Um, here we go, Maimonides. Take a look. Laws of Mikvaot, Laws of Mikvah. Text 5. Immersing in a mikvah. To emerge from a state of impurity is an ordinance whose rationale exceeds human understanding. It has nothing to do with filth that can be washed away by water. It is a divine decree. Lest someone think that in ancient times, Jews were ahead of their time. When people didn't bathe, when people didn't clean themselves, etc., the Jews talked about purity and purity and made sure everyone had a bath. It sounds nice, like a nice gimmick, right? To get people to bathe in ancient times. But it's not true. It's not true because the two points don't connect. Yes, it's good to bathe and to shower 100%. But that's not what a mikveh is. This is we're talking about a spiritual purification, not a physical cleanse. Two different situations. In fact, in Jewish law, before you go into the mikveh, you have to be spotlessly clean. If you have any dirt or anything on the body, right? that's not part of the body, then it's not a kosher immersion in the mikvah. You know why? 
because there's a separation between the water and your skin. Imagine if you have like a layer, a person has a layer of, um, you know, my kids sometimes come home from camp or whatever it is with, um, with these like tattoo things, you know, like the ones that, you know, the, that you apply with water on your skin. So it's like you can kind of scr um, scratch it off. Yeah. So imagine a person still has that. Yeah. Like a, a removable situation on their arm or whatever it is on their leg. Right. And you go into the mikvah. It's not a kosher immersion because the water has to completely envelop and touch the body and it's not touching the body. The water is touching that layer of film, which is on top of the body, but it's not touching the body. Are you with me? It's not touching the skin. Yes. Makes sense. So what, what, what am I saying? What I'm saying is a person has to be spotlessly clean before mikvah. So mikvah is not about getting clean because you were already clean. You're already spotless. So what's the mikvah for? So, and this, will, and this will answer the other question, which is not only what mikvah, but why mikvah, why impurity, why purification? Judaism is highly sensitive to life. Judaism is highly sensitive to life. And what I mean by highly sensitive is Judaism celebrates life. This may sound like an obvious thing. Who doesn't celebrate life? Okay. If that's your question, I have many answers for that. There are many cultures, many civilizations, many, many people who celebrate death. And death is considered to be the ultimate mark of accomplishment. Whether it's a notion that we live a life in order to gain heaven, that's a death-centric philosophy. I'll say that one more time. If a person believes that this life exists solely in order to get to heaven, that's a death-centric life. Life now is only for afterlife, for death. That's death-centric. That's not Jewish. Judaism does speak about heaven and reward, but that's not the purpose of life. Very important. Very important point that I'm making. It's not the purpose of life. You have other cultures that celebrate um, killing oneself, martyrdom. You have civilizations that celebrate, that, that popularize death symbols like coffins and, and, and skeletons, right? Walk a neighborhood in October and tell me you don't know what I'm talking about, right? We have cultures that don't mean bad, but celebrate symbols of death. You have film, right? Hollywood. That slow-mo's violence, slow-mo, slow motion, right? Glorifies violence with, with beautiful, when I say beautiful, right? Understand where my beautiful is coming from. Cinematography. So when I say that Judaism absolutely and fiercely celebrates life and not death, I mean exactly what I'm saying. Many, many cultures and civilizations, whether they're aware of it or not, are celebrating death celebrating death and putting death on a pedestal. Judaism puts life on the pedestal. Now, what happens when a person dies? You lay them to rest. You mourn their loss. You say Kaddish. You sit Shiva, the various Jewish um, rituals post-passing, which we're going to talk about in this course, Why the meaning behind these various rituals. We will talk about some of these. So Judaism doesn't ignore death, but it doesn't celebrate death. That's why in Judaism... No fancy caskets, no open caskets. Are you with me on this? No makeup on the deceased. 
No dressing them in fancy clothes. I, I hope what I'm doing is connecting some dots that maybe you haven't thought about before. What is the, what is the meaning behind an open casket? What's happening? You're beautifying death. You're, you're painting up death. You're dressing up death. Are you with me on this? Yes? You're literally dressing up death. Judaism says you, as quickly as possible, lay the person to rest Simple white burial shrouds and a simple box in the, in the ground to return them back to the earth. We don't glorify, we don't beautify, we don't celebrate death. And this is reflected, this one pivot, you celebrate death or you celebrate life, which one? That has far-reaching ramifications. The divide is phenomenally wide. We're talking about a, a, a people, a, a, a belief system where life is the most important, where you take the law and you completely over Jewish law, you completely override it when life is at stake. Famously, when life is at stake, you take the, the Torah's laws, you throw them out the window. You don't throw them out the window. But you, 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 you bypass because you have life to preserve. So this is a very long introduction to explain the Jewish sensitivity to life. And part of this sensitivity is that when there is death, it's noted and it's felt as an absence of life. And it's painful because we celebrate life. Any absence of life is painful. And, and it has to have an impact. It can't just, you know, we don't just move on. It has an impact because Judaism is so fierce about life, death has an impact. Every scenario of ritual purity, I'm sorry, of ritual impurity. Every single scenario of ritual impurity has to do with a form of death. Whether it's coming in contact with a dead human body, whether it's coming in contact with a dead animal carcass, whether it's coming in contact, whether it's childbirth renders the mother impure. Person says, well, why childbirth? The commentaries explain what happens at childbirth. The mother was carrying another life inside of her. And now, please God, the, the child is born in a healthy family, right? The, the healthy child is born, but, but bottom line is, relative to her body, there was an additional life, and now that life is no longer inside of her. Relative to her own body, to her own physiology, there's a life that is now absent. Hold on. Don't, un, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I understand that the life is now outside of her, 100%, and that's the point. It was inside, now the life, please God, in a healthy fashion, is now outside of her. But relative to her body, there's a loss, a subtle loss of life. It's not death, not talking about death, but a loss, somewhat of a loss of life. This is true with the other forms of ritual impurity, which are menstruation and seminal discharge. These are all situations where... There, are, there is a form of life or potential life that could have happened that didn't happen and therefore begets either a, a, very, um, a very stark or very subtle form of ritual impurity. I mentioned one, two, three, four, five different categories of ritual impurity. I know I ran through them quickly. Don't worry, this class is recorded. You can always watch, watch the replay. There, I mentioned five categories of ritual impurity. So... And, and in all cases, there's a common denominator, that there's some form of absence of life, whether it's obvious or very, very super subtle. And even if you celebrate it, like a childbirth, 
Nonetheless, there is some sort of subtlety there as well with, the, with an absence of life. And therefore, Jewish law reminds us and, and mandates that whenever there is some sort of modification, alteration, some sort of hiccup in life, when it comes to life, we take note and we need to do, undergo a process to reconnect us with source of life. That's where the mikvah comes in. What, is the, what are the waters of the mikvah symbolic of? It's like the womb. It's like the, it's like the, the waters, the original waters of life. We were all, we all, all of us originate from, in essence, from <laughs> floating in liquid, right? From a, from a place surrounded by water, so to speak, right? The amniotic fluid. So we've, we're all, so immersing oneself in the mikvah completely where one's head and entire body are under the water is kind of like going back to that place, going back to that source, going back to that source of life, which is, guys, hold on, which is, which is a, a rebirth almost. And it's also symbolic of going back to the origin, to, to the origins of creation where God's waters filled the earth. And I want to share with you now two texts that speak of this, so you can see this in the sources themselves and not just take my word for it. Okay. Um, here we go. This is coming from... Hold on, let's see the source. Ah, Reishet Chachma. This is a very powerful Kabbalistic book. Text 6a. We enter the mikvah to return our spiritually blemished bodies and souls to their origins. In the mikvah, we are enveloped like a fetus in the womb of its mother. When we emerge from the mikvah, our bodies and souls are restored. We become like new, and negative forces have no part in us. We should sense a new spirit from the spark of the soul that has been returned to us. Basically, it's the idea of rebirth and recreation, which is what the Chinuch writes in text 6b. This is another source, similar idea. We should regard ourselves after immersion as if we were created anew at that moment. For with immersion, we return to the primordial state when existence was enveloped by water, as it says in Genesis 1-2, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. We ought to contemplate that just as our bodies have undergone renewal, so too our behavior should be renewed for the better. Always a good opportunity to be introspective. But here we have two sources that speak about waters, the waters of the mikvah. When a person immerses oneself and all that's around them is water, completely from head to toe, completely surrounded and immersed in water, it's, it's, um, it's, uh, it's representative of going back to that fetus-like state and going back to the primordial state of the world when, God's, when the waters covered the entire surface of the earth and only later did God separate dry land. We live on the dry land, um, and that's only a secondary state. The original state was everything immersed in the water, and so therefore we're going back to that original state of life, both personal and, and, and global, microcosm, microcosm and macrocosm. Okay, so this hopefully made sense, and hopefully answered the two questions. Why does mikvah purify? Because it reconnects us with life. And why do people need purification in the first place? Because of a hiccup, a disconnect, some sort of glitch, whether it's, whether it's large or small in life. Okay, I'm going to pause here. Any questions, comments, um, anything on what I just said? Jump in, please. Yes, Alan. Hold on, you got to unmute yourself. Okay, you hear me? Yeah, I got you. Okay, uh, this is coming from, as I introduced myself last week, I guess, from the Arab Catholic. But um, when you say symbolically, the question occurs to me that 
it's either symbolic or it's real. I don't know that the, that the answer makes a difference, but it it it, it promotes in me the question. And uh, in, in the, the the Eucharist in the Anglican and Catholic Church is I'm not sure I endorse the full point, but the point is it's it's it, it purifies spiritually in reality as opposed to symbolic. So we feel better, we feel purified because it 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 uh, symbolizes purity and focuses us on purity, which is a wonderful thought in itself. But which is it in Judaism? Great question. Excellent question. So in Judaism, it's both symbolic and practical. So to, to explain that, in Jewish law, in the times of the ancient Holy Temple in Jerusalem, the law was you could not go onto the Temple Mount. You could not step foot into the Temple if you were in a state of ritual impurity. So you had to immerse, you had to immerse in the mikvah, which, by the way, they found outside the, the, the retaining walls, the southern retaining walls of the Temple Mount, there are multiple mikvot, multiple immersion baths, that had been found, that were lost to history, buried under rubble, but were positioned there because people had to immerse themselves in the mikvah before they went to the Temple Mount. It's not just symbolic, it was legal and practical, and it still exists today as well in various uh, contexts. We don't have a temple, but there are other contexts um, with regards to families, marriages, etc., where um, conversion, where mikvah is an essential piece of it. It's not just symbolic, although it also has symbolism, it's, it's legal, it's the law. So it actually creates a change. Part of that is to, rem to remind a person to get them to think about the, the elements of that change so that it's a, it's, a, it's a process. It's not just happening to us, but happening with us, with our understanding and, and, and knowledge and, and, and participation. But it's, uh, it's definitely a, from the Jewish perspective, it's a reality that's happening. Hope that makes sense. But excellent question. Okay, good. Good. Any other questions, comments on the mikvah, on ritual purity and impurity? No? By the way, you can always add to the chat. You can always message me and I'll keep you anonymous if you have a question. Anyway, um, good. Moving on. Moving on, moving on. Let's talk about the next question is, oh, I love this one. Let me pull it up on the screen. Um, okay, here we go. We dealt with this. Okay, this is a great question. Why are there so many do's and don'ts in Judaism? Oh, everywhere we turn, it's do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. There are 613 commandments in the Bible, but honestly, it seems like there's 6,013 or 600,013, because Jewish law and tradition really governs and, and, and touches almost every area, literally every area of life. And the question is, why is it so, I'm going to use a strong word here, but understand that it's, it's, it's in context of this, of this discussion. Why is it so um, invasive, right? It's so, it, it gets into you know, our, um, our space, it gets into our lives. Why are there so many do's and don'ts in Judaism? That's question number four. Okay, we're going to give three answers, each, each of which is beautiful unto its own. Um, I'll just give you the outline of the three answers. The first answer analyzes the value of having many, many, many mitzvot related to self, 
um, relative to self. The second answer connects the, or, or explains why so many mitzvot relative to God. And the third explains why so many mitzvot, do's and don'ts, relative to the world. So self, God, and the world. Let's jump in. Text 9a, this is from Nachmanides. He says, the mitzvot, the commandments of the Torah, the Jewish commandments, were given solely to refine human beings. In other words, to make us more of a mensch. The mitzvot are not to benefit God. This is what he writes. The mitzvot are not for God's sake. It's not like you're doing God a favor. You're doing yourself a favor by being a good person. The purpose, sorry, their purpose is to benefit humankind, to keep them safe from harm, shield them from negative beliefs and base character traits, remind them of the miracles and wonders of the Creator, and help them know God. In other words, all of these points, I don't know if I can highlight this. No, I can't. It's an image. Um, all of these points are for the human being's benefit. It's all to our benefit. The Midrash says that the mitzvot are intended to refine human beings as we would refer to refining silver. The act of refining silver is not senseless. It removes all impurities. So to the mitzvot remove from our hearts every harmful belief, inform us of the truth, and enable us to keep it continuously in our minds. This is Ramban. Nachmanani says clearly and unequivocally that the mitzvot are not for God. You're not doing God a favor. It's not like God needs you. God wants you. God is benefiting you, you and I. God is saying, I love you. Here's the best way to live. Here's the manual for life. This will optimize your existence. You know, people wonder all the time, especially when they have kids, they think about, you know, how come kids don't come with the owner's manual? <laughs> not owner's, but how come they don't come with a manual? Tells you, tell you what to do, <laughs> how to optimize this. In the Jewish belief system, we have that. It's called Torah. And the mitzvot are ways to optimize the human condition. So that answers the question. The question, as I reset the question, is why are there so many do's and don'ts? Because we're meant to optimize each part of our lives. So it has to talk about every part of our lives and existence, every part of our day, every part of our behavior. And it has to govern all that or it has to guide all of that in order to guide us into a beneficial way of living all around. If, it only, if you only had like one mitzvah, once a week, what about the rest of the time? We would be left to our own devices. That's never a good idea. So Torah, the mitzvot, the fact that there's so many, helps keep us um, on track as we go through life. Okay, so that's one answer. So it's to our benefit. That's why we have so many. Next, 9b. This is referring to, now this is us relative to God. Okay, second answer. This is the... Um, I'm going to paraphrase this. It's, it's gonna be, I, I feel like this text is going to be a little bit confusing. Let me paraphrase it. I'm going to stop sharing and so that I can see you all. Basically, text, text 9b evokes the idea that a mitzvah is a point of connection between us and God. What, connects, what connection can there possibly be between a finite creature, human beings, and an infinite creator? It's like it's an infinite gap. There's no, it's not like... You know, the connection between one and a million is, you know, there's 999,999 spaces in between, but at least it's somewhat relative. But a human being and God is an infinite gap. The only way to bridge that gap is when God bridges the gap. Because God's infinite. God can do whatever he wants, including bridge that gap. So God can bridge that gap. How does God bridge that gap? By giving us a mitzvah. God says, do this mitzvah. And when you do it, now we're connected. How are we connected? Because I gave you a commandment and you did it. I told you what to do and you did it. By virtue of that relationship alone, we now have a relationship, right? So inherently, infinite and finite, no connection. Give an example. 
Imagine you're walking down the street one, you're walking in the park one day. I know this is a far-fetched example because we're blending time, but work with me. Imagine you're walking in the park a long time ago and you bump into Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein. Oh my gosh, like Albert Einstein. What a genius. Let me ask you a question. Let's say, you know what, not you, not you or I. Let's say a young child bumps into Albert Einstein. What connection is there between Albert Einstein, the great uh, mind of science and physics, and, um, and, and, this, and this young child? On an intellectual level, there seems to be a, 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 massive, a massive gap. So, so, what happens next? What happens if Albert Einstein turns to the child and says, do me a favor, I'm very thirsty, can you please get me a cup of water? And the child goes and gets a cup of water. Ah, now there's a relationship. Give you an, another example. This is a, a more, I'm gonna give you a more emotional example. Let's say there's a child who has their sports idol, their hero. Let's say, you know, back in the day, maybe Michael Jordan or, um, you know, whoever it is, right? You had your sports idol as a child, like you idolized this. I grew up in the 80s, so uh, Michael Jordan was all the rage. So, so what connection do you have with your idol, so to speak, quote-unquote idol, right? What connection? No connection. Right? You look up to them, you're in awe of them, you have their poster, you have their poster in your room or whatever it is. What connection is there? But imagine, remember that commercial with, um, that Coca-Cola commercial with, um, help me out here, with uh, Mean Joe Green? Was it Mean Joe Green? Mean Joe Green. Yeah. yeah, I'm from Pittsburgh, by the way, so this is like, it's a hometown commercial also. But anyway, um, so Mean Joe Green, and the kid gives him a Coke, and he knocks down the Coke in one take, and then he throws him his jersey. Hey, kid, or whatever it is, right, right after the game. So suddenly, how does the kid feel? So before that encounter, what did the kid have to do with Mean Joe Green? Nothing. Garnished. No connection. He looked up to them. He knew him, but he didn't know him, right? He didn't know who the kid was, but suddenly... The child, the, the, the kid did something for him. Now they're connected. And now the kid feels like a million bucks. That's what a mitzvah is. A mitzvah is an opportunity for us to connect with God. So number one, who wouldn't take that opportunity? I mean, if God is really God, and that's our premise here, right? If God's God, that means that God is even greater than Mean Joe Green. I know, I know it's hard to imagine. I'm saying, but if it's true, if this is true, right? Then even greater than Mean Joe Green in the, with the iron, iron curtain, was it the iron curtain defense? Whatever. In the, in the heyday of the 70s Steelers, yeah? In the heyday, even greater than mean Joe Green is God. And if, imagine if you want a relationship with God. God says, hey, you know, do me a favor. Take these black leather boxes and wrap them around your arm in the morning and put them, put them on your head and, and say a little prayer. Or take a coin that you earn, your hard-earned money, and give it away to somebody else who needs it. Right? Imagine. So now you have an opportunity to do that. Now you're connected with God. So that's the second angle of what a mitzvah is. And that's why we have so many of them. So many opportunities to connect with God. Because connection is good, also for us. And that's why we have so many. Because imagine if you only had one, only one chance to connect. Once a week, maybe. Aye, that would be... So therefore, we have many, many, many opportunities, many mitzvot. So we have two answers so far. Number one, why so many mitzvot? Number one, because they're all helping us become better, to become more menshi. And so more opportunities to be a mensch, 
the more, the more of a mensch we are. Second reason, because every mitzvah connects us with God. The more points of connection, the better. Third answer. Let's see if we're going to read this inside. Let me take a quick look at the text. Um, let's see, let's see. Also a bit, written a bit esoterically. I'm going to paraphrase it outside. Look, you can look at all these texts later, but I just want to say it clearly and not, not confuse anybody. Text 9c explains that the reason why we're here is to make the world a better place. And every time we do a mitzvah, every time we do a mitzvah, it makes the world a better place. So if we want to bring more light into the world, it's good to have more points of light, more opportunities. So this benefits the world on a frequent basis, and that's why we have so many mitzvot. So in short, we have many mitzvot to continuously improve ourselves, to continuously connect with God, and to continuously bring more light and more goodness into the world, because every mitzvah is an act of goodness, an act of kindness, an act of blessing. The more blessings, the more light, better for the world, better for our connection with God, and better for ourselves. Make sense? Yes? Okay. Questions, comments, stories, jokes, anybody? Jump in. It was called the Steel Curtain. The Steel Curtain. I, when I was saying Iron Curtain, I'm thinking Russia, and then why would it be called that? That would be way too close. To, thank you, Steel Curtain. Iron Curtain. I, I'm so, who was that, Jerry? Did you say, Jerry, did you say that? Yeah. I'm sorry, I was... Okay, one second, one second. As a fellow burger, I just want to say this. Look, I was focused on the, on the Jewish part of it and the Torah part of it. The example from Mean Joe Green came to me in the moment. I'm sorry, I wasn't processing 100%. You got to let me off the hook. Steel curtain. I have to make my amends. I'll have to, you know, I have now something on Yom Kippur to, uh, to, uh, to confess about. Forgetting the, <laughs> the great, yes, Ray, go ahead. Four largest human beings I've ever seen. By the way, by the way, uh, apropos to that, sorry, Ray, if, I know you may have a question about actual Torah study, but let me talk about football just a little bit more. I was a few years ago, listen, we got to put priorities where they are, so let me jump in first. So um, a few years ago, I went with my wife to Buckhead, and we decided, you know, we were, um, there was a babysitter, and so uh, we wanted to go out and, uh, and just sit down and, and schmooze a little bit. So we went to the W Hotel in Buckhead. For those uh, that live in Atlanta, you might know where that is. I think it's on, is it on uh, Peachtree? Yeah? The W? It's a nice hotel, Peachtree. They have like a lounge or a bar uh, upstairs. Anyway, we wanted to go upstairs to the, I don't know if it's a rooftop or at the top, whatever it is. We go in. And they say, sorry, the elevator's closed. You can't go up. My high. I mean, how often do we get a babysitter already? Like, what's going on? No one told us. So they said, private party. I'm like, who's private party? Listen to this. Heinz Ward. Heinz Ward. I, I know that name. Again, for those of you that know football, you probably know what I'm talking about. For those of you that know Georgia Bulldogs football, you also know this. Heinz Ward was a wide receiver for the Georgia Bulldogs, drafted by the Pittsburgh Steelers and played for many years. Tremendous wide receiver. This is while he was still playing. Um, but he's from Atlanta, I think, or he lives in Atlanta or lived in Atlanta, some connection with Atlanta. He was throwing a party. Who was the party for? His team. So the, the teammates, the coaches, they were all in. I didn't, don't worry, I didn't, uh, you know, tweet it out or Instagram. Anyway, it was maybe before Instagram. They were there. Here's the, 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 the point why I'm saying this. I, I walk, so we sat down wherever in the, the lobby floor, and there were a few players, well, there were a few, yeah, a few players we found out that were, that 
just, you know, we're downstairs also. At, so I go over to the, to the bar to get a drink or something. Yeah, a Coke. Anyway, so I go over to the bar and two people are sitting there. And I, listen, I've never seen football players in real, real life. These, pe- these were human beings. They were like, just, you can't, it, massive human beings. Like, it makes sense that they're on the, these were offensive linemen. It makes sense that they were on the offensive line. If anybody could block people rushing, it would be these, these folks. Anyway, so just to confirm about large individuals, whether offense or defense, I've uh, I had the opportunity to encounter a few of them in real life, and they were sitting at the bar. When they stood up, I'm like, literally, there was an eclipse. It was incredible. Okay, Ray, go ahead. A Jewish question, perhaps. Yes. Um, yes, I'm wondering why we immerse our kalim in the mikvah. Oh, excellent question. Good. So. Going back, Caleb are the vessel. So going back to the um, prior discussion about the mikvah ritual bath, the question on the table now is why do we put our vessels, in other words, our um, pots, pans, utensils, and pretty much anything that we buy, it, even though it's kosher, it's brand new, no problem, no, it, it's, it's not a kosher question, but it still must be, it still must be immersed in the mikvah. The question is why? Look, the simple answer is, it's a biblical commandment, it's a biblical decree. The Torah says, immerse it in, uh, in the mikvah. Um, and it says it in the book of Numbers, that that law is there. When you buy something new, then, or when you encounter, when you, when you possess something, a, a new vessel, um, and then you need to immerse it into a mikvah. Um, and look, so what's the reason for it? I, I need to look it up. I mean, off the, off the cuff, off the offhand, I would say, maybe it's to reconnect it with its origin to understand that this is a tool that we should use for a higher purpose. So it's kind of like that cycle of life, wanting to make sure that we plug in, plug back into that source before we use it for our own activities to make sure that all the food that we eat and, and we prepare is going to be for, the, for a higher intention. I, I mean, that's what comes to mind, but I don't have a source ready to go for you, so I, I hesitate to give you a definitive answer. But that's, you know, apropos to what we said before about the mikvah and the theme of, about the cycle of life and connection to God, I would say it's probably a similar theme. But that's uh, with a massive disclaimer of we got we to gotta find a, uh, an original source for it. But excellent question. If I find something more definitive, I'll definitely let you know. Okay, but good question. Let's move on to... The next question, which is question number five. Why do many Jews sway when they pray? Now, you might see me do this also sometimes. You might see me rocking in my chair. Now, I don't have a rocking chair. This is all, this is all me. This is not the chair. This is all me. And I get it from a, it's like a traditional thing that many Jews do. You, you, you do this. Okay, you get extra bonus points in this class. Extra bonus points on your permanent record in this class. If you can tell me. What is shuckling? Ah, he even got the question before the answer and formed it in the phrase of a question. Good, I was going to ask the Yiddish word for this. And the answer is shuckling or what is shuckling? Shuckling is, uh, is this, right? Shuckling. I think there was once a song, I'm all shuckled up. Right? I'm all shuckled up. Do-do-do. Do-do-do. Right? Elvis or something? Anyway, moving on. Um, shuckling. Why the shuckling? What's the deal with that? In fact, there was a class that we did recently. 
Oh, it was the first session of the Yiddish course. We did a, a four-part series on Yiddish with an Emory professor, an Emory University professor. Many of you on this call, on this in this class, were on that at that class, and I opened that class, the first session, and I, I wasn't even aware of it, but I was. I was shocked, maybe because it was Yiddish and it was nostalgic and it, was, it just felt like the right thing to do. And I was, I was going like this vigorously until I saw in the chat someone saying, you're making me nauseous. Please, will you stop going back and forth? I'm like, sorry, my apologies. But what's the deal with this? What is the deal? I don't mean to get anyone, uh, we need a disclaimer, like, you know, if you're sensitive to, to movement. But what's the deal with that? I'm going to share with you a very interesting answer and then two more answers that are very profound. Okay, let's jump right in and let's look at this text. This is from the Kuzari, which is a famous Jewish work on, on uh, Jewish philosophy. Very fascinating story behind this comp the composition of this book, but not for tonight. Let's jump right into the text. Text number 10. It often happened... Oh, sorry. Let me give you... Let me tease it. He explains the shuckling from a very pragmatic perspective. Not enough books. It often happened that many persons read from the same book at the same time. It was possible that 10 or more read from one volume, which is why our books were so large. <laughs> you ever see a volume of Talmud? It's massive. So he says that's why they printed books big, because they only had one of them. Um, each of these readers was thus obliged to bend down in his turn in order to read a passage and to turn back up again. This resulted in a continual bending and sitting up while the book was lying on the ground. This was the original cause. Then, as his, as his human nature, people adopted this as a habit upon observing and imitating others. Okay, this is, I think it's fascinating. I, I, I wasn't there, so I can't, you know, beyond this, I can't, uh, you know, I can't vouch for it. But the Kuzari is a, is a very authoritative book on Jewish philosophy. But what he says, basically, Yudha Levi writes, is they used to have one volume that 10 people had to share, 10 or more people had to share. So everyone had to look in. So you had this constant looking in, looking out. It was like everyone's bobbing in, you know, like in a circle. So everyone's constantly going in and out. And that kind of created the habit that when we learn or when we pray, we go in and out like this. Interesting. Interest it's an interesting theory. It's an interesting concept. Um, you like it? Makes sense? Yes? I'm getting a little bit, a little bit of that. Okay. All right, I think it's interesting. I have, we have deeper answers though. Let's go back inside to the text and let's read some more takes on this. Um, text 11. This is relative regarding Torah study, the same thing regarding prayer. It is customary to sway, right, up and down, while reading the Torah as it says in Psalms, all of my limbs shall say, God, who is like you. We, therefore, we thereby testify that we, with all of our limbs, are harmoniously praising the Creator, which means, essentially, we want our Torah study to be a full-body experience. How do you ensure that your Torah study is a full-body experience and not just your brain studying or your eyes looking? It's full movement. Every part of your body is somehow engaged in the Torah study or the prayer experience. That's what makes it engaging. That's what makes it kol atzmotai tomarna. All of my limbs shall proclaim Hashem mikamocha, God who is like you. All my limbs because it's a, it's a bodily movement. All right. That's the second answer. Third answer. I personally like the third answer. I don't want to bias you. You, know, you, can, you can prefer your own answer, but this is number three is the one that I like. And that is, it's uh, symbolic of fire. Here we go. Why is it? Oh, this is what it says in Zohar and Kabbalah, text 12. Why is it 
that we sway to and fro when we study Torah, a habit that comes naturally to us, and we are unable to keep still? Here's the answer. Third answer. It is written, the soul of man is God's candle. When we utter even one word of Torah, the flame of the soul is kindled. We cannot keep still but sway to and fro like the flame of a wick. I love that um, imagery. I love the symbolism. And this is the one that I, this is personally, you know, all the answers are, are, are in Jewish sources, but this is the, personally, this is the answer, the approach that I connect with like a flame. You light a candle and what happens? The flame is dancing on the wick. It doesn't stay still. I mean, sometimes it stays still, but you know, if it's, uh, if it's really getting into it, it's, there's movement, there's swaying, there's flickering, it's doing, there's action. And that's like the soul of a human being. I want to go even deeper than what's stated right there in the Zohar. Now, I'm not, this is not my own, I'm not giving you my own interpretation. This is well sourced in the mystical texts, in the explanations of, of Kabbalah. So everything I'm about to tell you is 100% sourced in sources, although it's not, in, in, it's not fully elaborated on the source that we just read. So understand this, when it comes to a, f- to a flame, so what we have are two primary components. There are really three, but I'm going to focus on two. You have the fire itself and the wick that holds onto it. Right? You with me on this? So there's the wick and the candle, right? The, the bottom part. And then there's the fire that you attach to it, the flame that you attach to it, that then holds on. And that's why it dances. Because fire by its nature does not want to be there. Fire by its nature wants to, wants to, wants to be undone. Fire is the most restless of all of the elements of existence. Of, of the natural world, fire is the most restless. You put fire to something, it's not content, it destroys it. It burns it up. Why? It needs to move and it wants to fundamentally undo itself. And the only way to undo itself is to undo that which is holding it down. Are you with me on that point? Fire doesn't mean any harm, even as it does harm. All it wants to do is let go. And the only way it knows how to let go, if something's holding on to it, the only way it can actually get out of there is by destroying it. And then once there's nothing left, then it can, then it can go. Understand that the nature of everything in existence is self-preservation except for fire. Fire is the only element that will every single time burn itself out of existence. Fire is existentially restless. It does not want to be. Symbolically, fire is representative of, this, of, of, of spirituality. And the nature of spirituality is that it wants to be connected with source. It does not want to be separate from source in a separate plane of existence. It wants to be in the ultimate state of closeness with source. And therefore, the fire, which is a spiritual, even though even as it's physical, it's the most spiritual of the physical properties, it therefore undoes itself or burns out everything else until it can be undone, and then indeed it disappears. So in a similar way, the soul, our souls, have a similar nature. The human soul, which is a godly soul right, in the human being, the divine soul by nature does not want to be here. The soul wants to be close with God, but God sent it on a mission. And the mission is to attach itself to the body, to make, as we said before about the mitzvot, to make the body more of a mensch, right? To make the world a better place. the, the, The soul has a mission. So as long as it's here, it has to do the mission. But even as it's here, the soul is, the soul is shuckling. The soul is moving. There's a movement. There's an activity. There's a, um, 
There's a dynamic nature of the soul that's flickering. And that's represented when we shuckle, when we learn, when we pray, when we do spiritual activities. When there's movement, it's, it's, it's the way it's understood in Kabbalah, it's not the body moving. It's the soul moving as expressed through the body. So when we move, when we study, and when we pray, it's not the body. It's not coming from the body. It's coming from the soul manifesting itself through the body that even the body begins to move. But it's the soul's excitement. Does that make sense? Yes? Did all the points make sense? Nate, you have a question? I'm kidding. Hey, buddy. Nate's our youngest, our youngest student. Nate, it's good to see you, man. Hey. Okay, any questions, comments on the three, on the three, um, three explanations about chuckling? Donna, you look like you're about to unmute yourself. No? No, you're good? Okay. Fine. Let's continue. Listen, I like, uh, I like give and take, so let's go, folks. You got to ask some questions. But we have some, we have some very good, very um, uh, good conversations coming up. Okay, let's, let's continue. Speaking of which, number six. <laughs> yeah, this is a question I've got once or twice before. Why do traditional synagogues have separate seating for men and women? That's a, that's a good question. That's a good question. Um, attached to this question, um, there are several others that we could ask. Where does... Sorry. I have to ask it as a why. Why do some have together seating? I don't know what, what to call it. Um, mixed seating. Um, why do there seem to be an imbalance of roles in the synagogue between men and women? So we have, we have a bunch of associated questions with question number six. But the, the specific, and the, uh, the specific um, uh, wording of six is, why do traditional synagogues have separate seating for men and women? So what is the name? Let's ask the trivia question as we get started. What is the name of the separator in the synagogue between the men's and the women's sections? What is that called? The mechitza. The mechitza. Good. What does mechitza mean? Mechitza means a wall, a separator, a barrier, something to separate in between. So what's the deal with the separation? What's the deal with the non-separation? What's the deal with, um, with different roles? I, let's start the conversation. We're going to continue it next week when we talk about um, mitzvot amongst, between men and women. Um, do, they have the, do we have the same mitzvot or not the same mitzvot? And if not, why? We'll talk about that a little bit more next week. But let's jump in on this conversation. So here's what you need to know. Number one, Number one, um, houses of worship. And this is not only true of synagogues, this is true of many different other um, houses of worship, were traditionally separated by gender. In the, 18, in the 1700s, as we have here in one of the texts, uh, quoting Jonathan Sarna, the, the great Jewish-American historian, so in, in, the, 18, in the 18th century, um, churches began to have family, what they called family pews, mixed seating, family seating. 
And the intention was to kind of unite the family in their religious um, convictions, in their religious stance. So instead of having separate experiences in the house of worship, to have an experience together as a family. That was, that was the intention. And that's why the... Um, the, 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 that, that, and that's why family pews came into existence. Makes sense. But in this, for this very reason, that's why traditionally synagogues did not have mixed seating. Synagogues had separate seatings. Why? Because in Judaism, well, here's what you need to know about Judaism. Judaism is not a religion. Sorry for, uh, for dropping this on you here in our second lesson of the Jewish Course of Why, but Judaism is not a religion. However you define a religion, Judaism is, 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 not, is not a religion. What is Judaism? Judaism is a way of life. It's a way of life. Judaism, as we said before, all the do's and don'ts, it's about, it's, about a, it's about how to live. It's not about a belief system. It's not about a philosophy. It's not even, it, it's, it's not about the theory. It's about how we live, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a way of life. Therefore, where is the center of Jewish life? Where is the center? It's never been the synagogue. The synagogue was never the center of Jewish life. You know what the center of Jewish life has always been? Unmute yourself if you can guess. If you can take a while. Home, exactly, home. Home has always been the center of Jewish life. That's where all the Jewish stuff is done, right? Where do you educate your family? As a, as, a, as a family, at home. Where do you give charity? At home, right? Where do you light the menorah? At home. Where do you observe Shabbat? At home. Where do you eat kosher? At home. Where do you pray? At home. Also the synagogue. But Judaism, as a way of life, happens at home. You don't need the synagogue to be Jewish. Judaism is not meant to happen in a certain place it's meant to happen at home. Therefore, therefore, there was never seen uh, to, for there to be a need. It was never seen to be a need to have family seating in a synagogue. Why? Because you don't need to have the family experience Judaism together in synagogue because they're already experiencing Judaism together at home. Are you with me on that point? In other words, if at home there's no Judaism and the only time there's Judaism is in the synagogue, Okay, then I hear that argument. Well, the one time that we're all going to celebrate or experience Judaism, let's at least sit together. I get that. But that's never the intention of what Judaism is, is supposed to be. Judaism is intended to be a home-centric experience, which means 24-7 you're living and breathing Judaism as a family. Right? As a family unit at home. Synagogue is meant to serve a different purpose altogether. It's not the center of Jewish life. It's a very specific function. And that is to catch up on your gossip. I'm kidding. That was cynical. I'm kidding. That was a joke. What's the purpose of synagogue? That was a joke. Purpose of synagogue is to be in a space to pray in an exclusive way to God without any distractions. That's it. So to experience Judaism, you don't need a synagogue. In fact, synagogue is an excuse. When I say excuse, it's a, uh, it's a scapegoat. Oh, to do Jewish, we need to go to a certain place. No, you don't. Judaism is at home. 
Stay at home and do Jewish, right? Corona, no Corona. Judaism's at home. Uh, what's a synagogue? A synagogue is communal prayer and with an exclusive focus in a very formal setting on God, which is why there's a mechitza. Because Judaism understands the human nature. And human nature is, when you have people sitting together, it becomes a little bit more distracting when I say people together. When you have genders, right, that are sitting together, look, we can all pretend, we can all pretend that we're all tzaddikim, and that we're never, ever, you know, looking, you know, or checking out, etc. We can pretend, but Judaism is a little bit more honest than that, and chooses not to pretend, and says, look, the reality is, if you're sitting amongst everybody, somebody might catch your eye, and instead of thinking about God, you're thinking about the other, the other person, so therefore, let's not be distracted. Now, are you going to eliminate all distractions? Of course not. You can't. It's not, no, there's no perfect setting. But to the best of our ability. This explains, by the way, how mechitza, which is that separation, fits completely or works in concert with the other laws of prayer in a synagogue. Look at figure 2.2. I'm going to make it a little bit bigger here so we can all see it. Look at what the Code of Jewish Law says about synagogue decor. Any designs and artwork on synagogue walls need to be placed above eye level so as not to distract the congregants during prayer. So no art that's distracting in a synagogue. This is interior design of a synagogue. Number two, windows should be placed above eye level so that you're not looking outside and getting distracted. During prayer, one's eyes should be directed downward, again, to not be distracted. One may not pray facing a mirror so that you don't check yourself out. Though normally one may not eat before morning prayers, one may eat prior to prayer if one's, if one's hunger will detract from concentration. The point is all of these laws speak to the same core point that when you're in a synagogue, it's all about the prayer and it's all about God, no distractions. Therefore, traditionally, I'm speaking now, the question was why did traditional synagogues have this feature of separate seating? This is the rationale because the, the synagogue is exclusively for focused Worship, focus, prayer, and focus, prayer, it was decided or was uh, understood. The focus would be enhanced if we keep the genders separate so that you don't have this constant kind of social, not, not even social, but etc. checking out happening. Understanding the nature of human beings. Look, like I said before, we can pretend that human beings don't have that nature. But why? Why pretend? Rather be honest and then and work with that than pretend like it's not a thing and then it's a thing. So, look, that's the traditional understanding. As to the question, yeah, but what about family people? What about a family that wants to do Jewish together? And, and that's, they, they want to have that experience. Prayer, sermon, Torah reading as a family. So to this is what I said before. In Judaism, the family unit, the Jewish Family experience happens at home. It doesn't have to happen in the synagogue. Synagogue is a very specific um, situation, and that is meant to be without distraction. And this is considered to be one of the ways to, to minimize distractions. No different than where we put the walls. No. Where we put the windows, where we put the artwork, is also how we, sep how we separate this seating. Um, so it's not, this is very important, it's not that... Um, 
the mechitza is not intended to separate men and women, but it's intended to separate both. It's not intended to separate men from women or women from men, but it's, separ- it's intended to separate them both unto God. In other words, to allow both to focus exclusively on the task at hand. That's the rationale. Okay, now you feel free to ask questions, to, to, que- to question, to debate, to discuss, jump in. Any thoughts that come to mind on this? Donna? Actually, your first comment really got me uh, interested that we're not a religion. Correct. Because I always have a difficult time. Like, are we Jewish? Do I say I'm Jewish American? You know, I don't know what, you know, uh, are we an ethnic group? I, I never know what to say. Well, look, I said that. I said that um, partially because it's true and partially to be a little provocative. I, I'm, being, I'm being honest here. So, you know, is it a religion? I, I don't know the technical... Um, um, you know, Merriam-Webster or Wikipedia definition of, of religion to see how it fits. What I meant by it's not a religion, but rather is, is was really the other side of it, which is it's it's a way of life. It's not like a belief I profess. You ask, you go to high holiday services and you take a poll outside the door of services, you know, at the end of Yom Kippur. So you believe in God? <laughs> see how many people tell you absolutely. Yeah, you'll get a lot of, I'm not sure, maybe, I think so. So why are you here? So why do you just spend Yom Kippur in, in synagogue if you're not sure? Because I'm Jewish. That's how, that's how we roll. That's what we do. Judaism is less about belief and more about action. It's more about a behavior and a way of life. Less about the philosophy and more about action. Less about the board meetings and more about the resolutions. Right? Less about the talk and more about... There are expressions so for this in Yiddish that work. Yeah. More of a people there. More of a people. Right? Yeah, yeah, and therefore, and, and the way this translates is, it's not about the synagogue to hear a sermon, to get inspired, etc. Yeah, also, it's fine, but that's not what Judaism is. Judaism is a way of practice, a, a behavior, a way to live. And where is life lived? Not in the synagogue. And listen, if you're living in the synagogue, uh, then, 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 not, I don't mean you, I, I'm not, then, then maybe you're paying rent to the synagogue. But you're living at home. You're not living in the synagogue. You're living at home. So that's where Judaism happens. Judaism, here's the point. Judaism takes place in real life. It's not in theory. It's like, when we come to synagogue, then we think about Jewish things. Then what is Judaism if it's disconnected from reality? Then Judaism's a farce. And that's not what Judaism is. Judaism is a way of living. It means when we go to work, we're, being, we're, we're, do, we're working in a Jewish way, ethical, honest, charitable, etc. When we eat, we're eating Jewish. We're eating when and how and why, etc. When we go to sleep, it's, it's in a Jewish way. When we wake up, it's in a Jew- it's Jewish way. When we sit around the table, it's in a Jewish way. Judaism happens at home and in life. So what's the synagogue? A time to focus on God. So then why be distracted? I, what about the family? The family needs to sit together? 24-7 the family's sitting together. Right? You don't need Saturday morning between the hours of uh, 9 and 12 to sit together. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying you don't need it because you have it the whole week you have family sitting together, hopefully. Right? So you have all that time all the time. You have that time all the time. So what's, what's my point? My point is simply to say this, that when Judaism is relegated to the synagogue and that's the only space, 
then it makes sense. You want to capitalize on that opportunity and get everyone on the same page in the family. I understand that. But when Judaism is lived at home, then you can look at synagogue as another experience, in other words, which is the, the real intent of it. And in that context, it makes sense. Just like the art is not meant to be distracting, just like the windows are not meant to be distracting, so too the seating is not meant to be distracting. Is it, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Is it sexist? Is it um, demeaning? It's a separation. It's a separation. So why is it that sometimes, you know, women were put up in the balcony and men were on the main floor? So that gets into the other question about roles in synagogue life. But there's a few different, so there's a few different questions. But as far as the seating, hopefully that, that question, hopefully I've addressed it in a way that explains at least the traditional model. Again, I, I want to be very clear here. I am not, my intention is not to criticize, my intention is not to, to, um, to create any sort of division or friction. I'm just, there's a, the question, I've been asked the question countless times, and I, I know many of you, I don't know, but I, I imagine that some of you may have been thinking about this question, even if you haven't asked it to me before. What's the deal with the separation? Isn't that, you know, it smacks of, uh, of, of not being nice or friendly or welcoming. So my goal here is to explain the rationale behind it. Again, not to, not to um, look anywhere else, but just to explain the rationale behind the separation of the seating. Again, the, the points that are relevant are Judaism is, is primarily a home-based experience. The synagogue has its specific function. For the specific function of the synagogue, it is better aligned or, or um, better. It's, it was thought traditionally, it's, it's thought traditionally to, to be um, helpful to have to minimize distractions, and this would be one way to do so, both for men and for women, for the same, in other words, for, for both to have that separation. Now, a related question is, why are there different roles in, this, in traditional synagogues for men and women? For example, leading the services, reading from the Torah. So sometimes we put all, the question, we put all these questions together and, and come to the conclusion, look, traditional synagogues are, you know, it's not, uh, it's not welcoming to women because, look, separate seating, number one. Number two, you know, uh, not, not reading the Torah, not, not, not uh, leading the services, etc. It's a good question. But really, we're going to focus this. We're going to focus um, on that next week. The short answer is that in halacha and Jewish law, men and women have slightly different legal obligations when it comes to certain mitzvot. One of them is communal prayer, not prayer in general, but communal synagogue prayer. Men are obligated; women are not obligated in communal prayer, and therefore, from a halachic, from a pure legal perspective traditional legal perspective, Jewish legal perspective, if one is not obligated in a mitzvah, then one is not able to discharge the obligation of another who is obligated in it. So only someone who's obligated can help discharge the, uh, another party who's obligated. But someone who's not obligated cannot discharge the obligation of one who is obligated. So therefore, if a man is obligated in communal prayer, so... Um, a man traditionally leads that service to discharge the obligation of leading the service of the communal prayer because he too is, um, is, is obligated. That's why it's only a male above 13, bar mitzvah, of that legal age with that legal obligation that in traditional synagogues leads the services for that reason and also reads the Torah because that's a communal obligation that, again, women are certainly 
certainly can do the mitzvah, but are not obligated to do the mitzvah. The difference between doing a mitzvah and being obligated to do the mitzvah is, would it be held against you if you didn't do it, so to speak? You know, and, uh, you know, not that anyone's holding that ledger, but is it an obligation? Like, if you didn't, it's a problem, or is it just, you know, a, a good thing that, that is encouraged? So there's 14, there's 14 mitzvot of the 613, there are 14 that are different between men and women, that men are obligated and women are not obligated, and the communal stuff like prayer and Torah reading would be, would be part of that list of 14 things. And that's why in traditional synagogues, women don't because they can't discharge the obligation of those who are, i.e. the men. But women are certainly encouraged and welcome and, and counted in every other uh, measure of the uh, um, meaning of the term in, in communal prayer, but just not in the obligatory fashion because, again, we have those distinctions. This topic will be elaborated on next week, but I wanted to mention it because I know that oftentimes these questions about traditional synagogues and women, the questions kind of all come together. It's like the separate seating plus the roles that kind of all comes together, so that's why I wanted to make sure to at least initially address it. Um, I hope what I'm saying makes sense, even though I'm, I'm cutting it very short. Yes, does it make sense? Ish? A little bit? Anyone have a question? Maybe everyone has a question. <laughs> Any questions? I have a question. Yeah, go ahead, Stan. Yeah. Um, if, the, uh, if the home is the center of Jewish life, why is it that certain very important prayers uh, require us to have a minion before they can be recited? Excellent question. Excellent question. So when it comes to certain, so the question is, why is it, if Judaism is centered in the home, so why are certain prayers only able to be recited when you have a communal setting? The answer is because certain prayers are a message from a community. And by definition, it requires that communal setting. But that is by no means the essence of Judaism. The essence of Judaism is not a Kaddish. It's not. I, I, I'm not saying anything radical, by the way. I'm not, uh, this is not me saying anything radical. But the truth is, uh, Kaddish is extremely important to, to recite after somebody passes. The prayer that's recited um, in memory of a loved one. It's a very important prayer. But that is by no means the, the, the totality of Judaism. So what is the totality of Judaism? It's living Jewish on a day-to-day -day basis in every area of our lives, which by and large happen in our homes and, and, and in our goings-on in the world, not in the synagogue. Is Kaddish very important? Absolutely. Is it a communal prayer? Yes. Can it only be recited with a minion with a quorum of ten? Yes. Because the Kaddish is a public declaration of, of, God's, uh, of God's beauty, of God's glory. And a public declaration, by definition, needs to be public. And public is defined in Judaism as at least having 10. So that's the answer. So it, I, hope that, I hope that my answers, I hope my response is making sense. In other words, it is important, but it's, it's, it is not, it's, it's, it's not the totality of Judaism. Now, the, I think maybe you're touching on another question, which is why for so many of us have the, have the synagogue rituals become the focus of Judaism, right? Why... Why is it that when so many Jews, maybe American Jews, think about Judaism, the mind goes to the synagogue experiences? I don't know that I have a good answer for that. Other than to say, the, the more we let, the, and again, this is not about, this is, this is not at all, um, I'm not saying this in any, in any negative way. I'm just saying the more we let go of Judaism 
at home, the more we hold, almost hold, have to hold on to the, 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 the public setting. But the more we hold on to home, the more we have that balance and we understand in context what the, what the role of the synagogue is. I, I, and I'm, I'm not in any way discounting the synagogue or discounting Kaddish, God forbid. These are tremendously important. But the, the essence of Judaism is certainly in, um, in, in that home environment. Um, but your, your question was, why do certain things require a minion, a, a quorum of ten? Because certain prayers are public prayers, and that requires a, a public setting. Okay, let, let me quickly scan. Oh, we're after the time. I'm going to super, super fast scan the, um, the subsequent pages. Oh, huh, this is a big one. Why is Israel important to the Jews? We'll answer that in 30 seconds. Don't worry. And the last one is animal sacrifices. Okay, here we go. Start the timer. 60 seconds. All right, number one. Why, um, why, why, uh, why is Israel important to the Jews? Because, again, Judaism is not a religion. It's implementation. And to implement it, you have to live a, a materialistic, you have to live a real life. And to live a real life, you have to have a place to live. You have to have a country. So God says to the Jewish people, I don't want you to be a theoretical people that believes in a philosophy. I want you to have a space to implement it, to create a country that is driven, sorry, not, yeah, that is guided, driven, and, and inhabited, lived in with these set of ideals. And that country will be called Israel. Why Israel geographically? Man, some, some have uh, posited that it was at the epicenter, the crossroads of the, of the ancient world. It was the various um, uh, transportation routes. It was right at the crossroads that by the Fertile Crescent, etc. I'm not going to comment on that. There are texts in your, uh, in your handout, in your, in your uh, packet of texts that you can look up that. Rabbi Arya Kaplan has a thought on that. And that's fine. It's all wonderful. But the core of the answer is Jews need a land. Because Judaism, Torah, is about implementation, like I mentioned before about Judaism at home. Judaism is meant to be done in a space, and that space, although we could, we could do it while we're traveling, certainly, but it's uh, God, God said, have a homeland that you create a, a place on earth that actually lives with, the, with these ideals, or breathes with these ideals. The last question about animal sacrifice is a very a complicated question. That's complicated. It's, um, there are a few pieces that are involved. The core of the question is, when you look at the Torah and the Torah, the Bible talks about animal sacrifices. Seems a bit barbaric, seems a bit outdated. Um, what's the deal with that? The short answer is, look, you could ask the same question about eating meat in general. Why, people that eat meat, you're also taking the life of an animal. So that's why people are vegetarians. Um, but Torah is not against eating animals. You don't have to, but Torah is not against it for the simple reason that Judaism believes that every, the purpose of everything is to ascend to the level above it. Vegetation, sorry, um, the, the earth becomes imbued in vegetation, which becomes imbued in animals, which, be, which can become imbued in, within human beings, and human beings in turn rise up to worship God. So everything is meant to ascend. So we take, we lift up everything in the world around us and elevate it ultimately in the service of God. Sometimes the item of the world itself can directly be of service to God. Like when we take a coin and give it to charity, when we take wool and make uh, tzitzit, make the, um, like a talit um, out of it, when we take um, uh, a, a, a myrtle, a willow, uh, and a citron, and a, and a palm branch, and we shake it on Sukkot, we're taking plants from the natural universe and elevating it to God. An animal sacrifice was no different. It was taking an animal 
and elevating it into divine worship, which is really the purpose of uh, the purpose of life is really that everything should be elevated to a higher stature. This was one form of it. Um, today, again, it's uh, it seems, you know, it, it challenges the modern mind. Nonetheless, that is the rationale cited in the good books for it. I wish I had more time to elaborate on it. Um, you know, I don't mind staying on for a few more minutes to discuss, but I want to officially close out to allow everybody, if, the, if you have to go, um, and we'll officially close it out. Thank you very much for joining me tonight for lesson number two of the Jewish Course of Why. I hope you got some answers. But as I said in the first class, it's not always about the answers. It's about the freedom to ask and to ask more. And by the way, if any of the thoughts that I shared tonight, if you felt like, mm, I don't know about that, I still question that, then I say that's fantastic. Because the best way, the best Jewish way to learn is by continuing to ask and continuing to look, look for answers. And you know what? Will we answer all the questions? Will we hit a point where we're like, mm, I don't know, something still is not 100%? Possibly. But that doesn't stop us from exploring and continue to explore. Thank you for joining me tonight for this. Next week, we look at Hollywood. We look at conversion to Judaism. We look at anti-Semitism. We look at cemeteries. We look at Satan. And much, much more, all next week on the Jewish Course of Why. Same bad time, same bad channel. Thank you for joining me tonight. Hope you enjoyed. Um, I'm staying on to answer questions, but thank you. All right. Good. Happy birthday, Adina. Oh, yes, Adina Malka, happy birthday. Ah, happy birthday. Happy birthday. Very exciting. Um, Adina Malka, your birthday is tomorrow night or tonight? Wait, you're muted. My birthday is Friday. Ah, okay. So we're still we're still in the week. We're still in the week. Good. Moving in on it. Getting close. Well, happy birthday. It'll be a week of happy birthday wishes. <laughs> so That's how we roll. Thank you. Happy Thank you. birthday. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Pleasure, pleasure. Tomorrow. Yes, we'll see you tomorrow. Torah study, 7.30 p.m. All I right. have a question. Yes. A question. Sure. It's about when I when I um, went in, in in India, always I saw a lot of Magen David. Yes. And I couldn't understand. There is any relation with with, um, with something or? That's a great question. I will tell you this. The Torah tells us that Abraham, after his wife Sarah passed away, Abraham remarried. He married another woman. And the Torah says that he had a bunch, uh, uh, many more children, many more sons. And it says that he gave them gifts and he sent them to the east. He sent them to the east and gave them gifts. And Rashi, the commentary on Torah, Rashi says, what gifts did he give them? What, like uh, money? No. He gave them gifts of chachmah. He gave them gifts of wisdom. And so many have said, have posited, we don't know for sure, but many have speculated that, um, that the Eastern philosophies, a lot of them are, are ultimately coming from the tradition of Abraham, of Abraham. In other words, Jewish tradition, original Jewish tradition, which means that there are some connections at the source between Judaism and 
India and, 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 and the places that practice Eastern tradition. That's why I, oh. I'm not an expert in this, so I can only tell you what I've read and what I've heard. That's why in, in Eastern tradition you have, um, I think you have some, something called the Brahams or Brahm, which which Abraham, 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 it's very similar. Brahmin, right, so it's a very similar um, uh, terminology. So many have speculated, and I think there's a lot of reason to say that there's a connection, that there is this essential, original connection between Judaism, Abraham, and the Eastern religions. So does that mean that the Star of David goes all the way back? It's possible. It's possible. It's possible that it only became called uh, Star of David at a later point, but it was always a Jewish symbol. So yeah. it's interesting. Yeah. Rabbi, thank you. Pleasure. Talks about that. Oh, Say it again. Rabbi Leiva Wolf. Yes. Abraham sending his children there. Yeah, Rabbi Label Wolf, of course, is the great Kabbalist and, and, and uh, meditation master, for, Jewish uh, rabbi from Australia, um, which, by the way, I should mention, after the high holidays, I've, I reached out to Rabbi Wolf, Rabbi Label Wolf, and we have, I've secured him for two nights to do meditation with us. Spirit, it's called Spirituality and Meditation Workshop. And um, it's going to be two Mondays in a row, one week and then, and then the next week, two sessions with Rabbi Label Wolf live from Australia. He is, if you've, if you've ever heard him before, he's unbelievable and he's a real treat to have. So we're, we're very lucky to, to, to have him. Um, but yeah, there, I, 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 I can't say 100%, but in my mind, it's fairly certain that there, that there are connections there between the two. So it's interesting. So you, you saw, Mariana, you saw these, these uh, uh, the stars of David just around, not, not specifically in Jewish places, just everywhere. Hold on, you have to unmute. Yeah, I, I saw in, a, in a different places, but especially in like palace, mm. in big palace, and um, I'm very impressed because uh, it was by Yen David and I, I asked and I read a little bit and they said that Jesus went to, to India for a long time yeah. uh, to, to learn with Interesting. for learning and learning spiritual things like like before right when they when they were like like groups in in israel and, and israel but by the yeah but palestine and yeah interesting and 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 it says that and they said that he brought those that symbol there yeah interesting they, they don't know very interesting that's very it yeah. could be that, that could be if there's a connection from then it would have already been in circulation because king david yeah. was a that, that, that could also be a very... Um, do do a, you heard about the Senec? The Senec? Uh, it's a group that, that, no. that from, from... There were Jews, but they were like very, very spiritual. And they, they have like um, different kind of, of troubles, like for man, just to be connected. And they, it, 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 I learn, I, I read that it, they went 
just to be connected to India. Interesting. To learn. Interesting. Who is this? What group? Very interesting. The Esenios? Esenios? I don't know how to say that in English, but in Spanish is Esenios. Interesting. Esenios, it's like, like, was like a group. Like a group, yeah. Like one of the, like a, like a splinter group from the mainstream. Yeah. Yeah. In yeah. India, I also saw that uh, what looks like the Nazi symbol, mm. but it's a very ancient symbol. It Interesting. isn't like something that Hitler, his logo, he had designed. His right. Brand. It's a. I saw that all over India. That it's interesting. Like it's Nazi symbol, but it's peace. It's nothing. It's nothing to do something with Something else. Yeah. Fascinating. Me too, but, but it's it's in the other way. It's it's not the same. It's it's in it's like it's reversed. Yes. It's inverted. 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 Yes. Interesting. Fascinating. Look. You know what? When you go around, you start seeing, you know, it's, it's amazing to see how things connect and travels that have uh, brought things around. Yeah, it gets yeah, around. Yeah. All right. It's great. <laughs> good, good, good. All right. Great to see everyone. Have a wonderful evening. Lila Tov. We'll see you next week. Lila Tov. Take care. Bye-bye, everybody. Lila Best rewards. Regards. Where's mom?